I'm Elaine Caskett, cyberpsychologist and author of Reboot, Reclaiming Your Life in a Tech-Obsessed World. And this is the Reboot, Your Life on Tech podcast, in which I'm exploring fascinating intersections of psychology and technology with equally fascinating guests. My contention is that all psychology is cyberpsychology now, that you cannot really understand one without the other. One of my longtime colleagues in the death and digital space, and one of my favorite conversational partners, is Dr. Carl Oman. When I met him, he was at the Oxford Internet Institute, and now he's on faculty at Uppsala University in Sweden. It's a good thing that I have a digital remarkable notebook on which I can read and annotate PDF documents, because otherwise I would have extinguished a couple of highlighter pens when I had the privilege of reading an advanced copy of his upcoming book, The Afterlife of Data, What Happens to Your Information When You Die and Why You Should Care. In the episode today, Carl and I speak about why digital remains, the data left behind when we die, matter to everyone on the planet, not just the approximately 63% of the world who are connected to the internet. We discuss why it makes sense to say that we live inside the internet or inside of the archive. We ponder our responsibilities to the digital dead and to history and look at how our current ways of dealing with the dead connect us to history, including quite ancient history. And we consider what the outcomes might be when we combine artificial intelligence with digital remains. So without further ado, here are Dr. Carl Oman and me in conversation for this week's installment of the Reboot, Your Life on Tech podcast. Enjoy. What do people need to know about Carl Oman? Uh, well, I suppose... Formally, I'm the I'm an assistant professor of political science in Uppsala University. Although I'm not a political scientist, uh, rather I come from the technology side. So I do uh, studies of artificial intelligence from various angles, and uh, I guess the the work that I'm most famous for is my sociological work on uh, digital remains and what happens to our data when we die. And, why it is very, very important. So then why does it make some kind of sense? Because I think that it actually does make some kind of sense that you are on staff in the Department of Political Science. And I think this is kind of one of the things that really comes home to a person when they're reading the afterlife of data is that political science consideration or considerations for politics, regulation, legislation uh, are related to everything that you just said. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's true. Uh, this space of digital afterlife, I think for the, at least for the first 10 years when people started writing about it, it was perceived very much as a kind of uh, private individual phenomenon like what, what should happen with my data with my digital footprint when i die or you know at tops kind of like what am i going to do with my grandparents data when when they die or you know some friend or or family member uh and i suppose what, what i brought to this field was uh introducing the dimension of power in the sense of like who owns these data uh you know who has the control over our individual pasts but also bringing in a more psych um, sociological perspective of 
trying to uh, put these individual experiences into a much broader context. So uh, in the next three decades alone, uh, about 2 billion people will die, many of whom will leave a considerable amount of data behind. Uh, and the same questions that we're asking as individuals in terms of, you know, what, what do I do with the data of my departed uh, father or grandfather, or whatever, uh, but also the ethical questions of what should I do with these questions? My point is that we're going to have to ask those kinds of questions, not only as individuals, but also on a collective level, as a society, as a civilization, uh, inheriting the data of uh, an entire generation of internet users. Mm. It feels like, and you see this, not just in books and talks and opinions about digital remains, but in much else to do with our digital milieu, the surveillance, capitalism, uh, the attention economy, everything like that. These, these, these players, the individual level, the sort of ruler, legislator, governance level, but then this kind of collective action, collective interest level. And, and the, obviously these categories are overlapping, but a lot of the conclusions that people seem to be coming to is, is it's, you know, there's things that individuals need to think about, but only collective action and a collective appreciation of how critical this is, is going to tip the needle so that we can influence governments to regulate the market. It's, it's, it kind of goes, it's very complicated and it sits with no one individual. Yeah. And, and I often get the question of like, uh, every time I talk to journalists about, uh, so the, the, some of the early chapters goes through just, or go, go through just the, the numerical aspects uh, of uh, death online, just how much data are we talking about? So as I mentioned, mentioned 2 billion people in the next three decades, um, I also made these predictions of uh, based on UN data and, and Facebook data that uh, in a couple of decades, maybe four decades or so, there are plausibly going to be more dead than alive users on Facebook, for instance. And I mean, Facebook may not be around in, in four decades, uh, but I think it illustrates uh, the inevitable fate of any long-term uh digital platform or infrastructure that they got to find a way of coping with uh, uh, the death of their users, which is much more difficult than it sounds. And whenever people ask me like, okay, so what, what should we do? What's, what's the best solution to this problem? I'm always like, well, what makes this such an interesting topic is that there isn't a solution with big S because whatever we choose to do with these data, whether we outsource it to the market, whether we find some mechanism that just destroys data uh, in, in some way, like someone's going to lose out. There are going to be winners and losers, whatever we choose to do. But the current trajectory where we're going right now is that we're outsourcing our collective history 
uh, basically our, our like our collective digital past to the hands of this like tiny group of tech billionaires. So at like just as a case in point, I usually bring up the Me Too movement, like this uh, very very important, like one of the most uh, significant movements, and I think a tipping point in in global feminism. Like all of those tweets are going to be controlled like that entire narrative is going to be owned by one person and that's elon musk and we've never had that in history before like you know imagine if some other super significant historical event, like you know the i don't know the student uprisings of 68 or uh, uh you know the i don't want to bring up any any of the major wars but you know events of that kind of dignity what if one person controlled the entirety of information about that event. I mean, that would be that would be horrific, and that's exactly where we're heading. Uh, and sure, there there are some winners in that, but there are also many losers. Uh, so there are, of course, better and worse ways of dealing with it. But there are always going to be winners and losers, and it's up to us to assess, like, okay, what uh, what trade offs are we ready to make? Yeah. And we already have losers because of the various algorithms of oppression and mm. difference in representation and power of different groups on different platforms, some of which is there for historical reasons, because the information initially going in and training the algorithms is weighted towards different groups of people and skewed in different kinds of ways. Uh, and then we if we don't keep an eye on it, can perpetuate that. And so, yeah, the, the fact that Me Too was a hashtag Twitter embedded movement where the movement itself was taking place on a particular media platform, we might retain, if Elon Musk eliminated all history of that, we might retain all the writing about it and the commentary on it and the reflection on it in other places, but the movement itself could conceivably vanish, exactly as you're saying. Uh, it's one of the points I bring up in the book in that like history is changing so much in that usually there there would be some kind of event and then there would be writing about the event uh and and you still see this in like early writings about the internet how there's this distinction of like uh is the internet part of the real world like uh you know are your online friends your real friends uh, is online dating really dating uh and now like you know uh in the 20s we realize that just how absurd that is because many of the major historical events is not just that uh, social media are about like the me too tweets they're not describing something happening out there in society like the tweets are the event like the movements and the data they're the same so that if you destroy the data you destroy the entire event but also like if you have access to those archives it's not like you're just reading about what happened but you can actually stretch out and like look at the very thing that constituted the movement and I think that is true for hybrid movements like Black Lives Matter, for instance, which to a large extent uh, also took place and are taking place um, online. The Arabic Spring would be another example. Yeah, I mean, and this is part of uh, Luciano Floridi's 
big point, the Oxford Internet Institute philosopher, about it not being realistic or possible or accurate to say, oh, we are now offline. We are now online. Yeah. And he coined this on life, he and his group on life term. I'm not sure how much on life has taken off. I quite like the word fidgetal, <laughs> the kind of, mm -hmm. you know, combination of physical and digital that is so hybrid. And yet I think there's a bit of a backlash, especially post the lockdown periods of COVID, where sometimes a, a suggestion that there's this uh, validity or reality or, I don't know, it, it, uh, <laughs> integrated nature of uh, digital stuff um, is almost met with uh, but we learned how damaging this perspective was when we were in COVID and, and you know, we lost uh, connection with real relationships. So there's, it feels like there's been a bit of a um, resurgence, I guess, of a resistance to the idea that there's this portion of our mm -hmm. lives that is digitally embedded, that is, has every bit as much, I don't know, right to be considered and valid as any other dimension of our existence. I certainly yeah, I noticed mean, it's, that it's, in books like Johan Hari's hmm. Stolen Focus and things like that. Yeah. It's funny you should uh, bring up that uh, the, the on life concept. Uh, I mean, it, it was really big like five mm -hmm. years ago and everybody mm -hmm. was talking about it. And of course, it's been very influential for my thinking. Luciano has his, uh, he, so he was my the supervisor for my doctoral thesis uh, at Oxford, and he has since moved to Yale to start a new digital ethics center there. Um, but I uh, I use this idea of on life that we're like constantly connected uh, because he, he has this beautiful slide where he's like, you know, the first computers were so big that we're standing inside the computer. And then they become these kind of handy devices, the the laptop, and we have them in front of us. Uh, but now we've entered into this era where once again, we have technology surrounding us, like we're inside the internet. It, it, it's, as you pointed out, it becomes almost an absurd question of asking like, but were you online? At like what is that like exactly <laughs> yeah, what does exactly. that mean like i was close to my fridge which yeah. is connected to the wi-fi there was an echo dot next to me ambiently listening <laughs> i had my watch on exactly i was in my car like everything is connected all the time yeah. so like whether yeah. or not i was online it sounded like did you go into the room where you have your computer and connect to the cables of the internet you're uh, like in Tron or something that yeah, 1980s movie where you go and those 80s movies where you would go into the mainframe or would be zooming around in it. We are essentially in Tron whilst denying that we are in Tron all the time, exactly. And and I make use of that idea in saying that uh, what has really happened is that we we built the archives to store the dead and to store the past, and now we have moved into the archives too. Like we're mm -hmm. living inside the archive. So mm -hmm. I'm I'm devising this concept of the archaeopolitan, that mm -hmm. like the citizens of the archive. Mm -hmm. In in a kind of similar sense to how globalization collapsed space, so that we're now all connected to everywhere else in the world. Like if someone is, is starving in uh, you know uh, a country thousands of miles from where I live, or you know if if there are uh, wildfires in Australia, like I see this and I'm like 
morally respondent to it. Uh, the world is morally present to me. And my argument is that something similar has happened in that we've now entered into an age where we all live in the archives and the past is con continuously morally present to us, which faces us with new kinds of, uh, of duties. Yeah, and, uh, you, ta you talk yeah. in the book about how the dead remain in current affairs, involved in current affairs now, and that's one way of framing it. And another way of framing it, as you're saying, is that we remain involved in the affairs of the dead, that this is a, a two-way street, and that sort of like the ancient Egyptian concept of the juxtaposition of the world of the living and the world of the dead, or uh, certain conceptualizations of the relationship of these realms in certain kind of um, other religions that are still active in the world today, it's it's a two-way street. There's a communication that's happening and there's a perpetuation of the concerns and the personae of the dead in our right now society. Yeah. No, very much so. Uh, I think there is uh, certainly histori a historical connection to be made there. You bring up Egypt, but also like we can go all the way back to prehistory uh, in the sense of uh, in doing research for this book, I um, did a lot of reading up about uh, like the early Neolithic when when people first first move into actual permanent houses. And we tend to think about like there's this common saying in, in philosophy that houses like the uh, tombs are houses for the dead. But it's, it's kind of like almost the opposite. It's that houses are tombs for the living. The first structures, the first permanent structures built by mankind were actually sepultures and tombs. And uh, at that point in, in time, we were still nomads. Uh, but those monuments, those first stone monuments became the the kind of the holy sites that you would return to in your yearly cycle. And you would probably convene with uh, with your kin, other tribes at these sites. Like Stonehenge was one of these these sites. So the stones of Stonehenge are believed to be representations of the dead. Um and naturally those sites became the first permanent settlements for the living. So it was the living that moved into the site that was built for the dead. Uh, and then eventually they became houses that we today have, think of as shelters for, the, for the, the living. But it's kind of similar with how we built archives of information, of uh, you know books to preserve the past, uh, digital archives to keep track of uh, of various things and logs and so on. And now all of a sudden we we live inside these these logs and records of the past. I had so many aha moments that are just related to the etymology of words when I was reading the early part of the book, or I was thinking, why did I never notice that before? And you were talking about the word corpus, you know, a body of literature. That's the word we use 
for, oh, what's in the corpus, i.e. all of the literature that there's been that we need to review for our thesis or whatever about a particular topic, that's what it's referred to. Or the word engraving, which yeah. if you look at it literally means digging a grave on paper. Yeah. And we think about all this writing that goes into the archives, but then also photography and the, the idea that the essence of photography is death and you write about how photography was a technology that democratized access to posthumous presence and its role, mm. the photography and spiritualist or sort of spook photography, as soon as photography came, became a technology, this is what you could go to the photography studios and you could get a picture taken that would allegedly connect you with this other realm. And so we've got all of these images, we've got all of these words flowing into the the archive, and this is the collective corpus of our civilization. A yeah. civilization, of course, um, is the biggest record of human behavior that's ever been accumulated. But then, of course, problematically, a lot of that behavior is also, to a lot of people's argument, essentially produced by yeah. the same platforms that are now st storing it. So it's a phenomenon of the snake eating its tail. Facebook nudges our behavior below the level of our conscious mm. awareness since we have the best minds in the world, as James Williams has said, amassed in service of keeping us online as long as possible in the attention economy. And so they produce the behavior, and then they archive the behavior uh, and... Yeah, and this is this is despite all of the resonances with history and the ancient Egyptians, the Neolithic, and etc. This is still a situation that we've never had in this way before. Yeah, I mean there there are so many connections to to the past, as you point out. Like virtually every new information technology that emerges is uh, initially interpreted as a kind of gateway into the transcendental world, where you can finally communicate with the dead uh, you know as, as you're pointing out the ancient egyptians thought that uh writing was a way to access the the world of the spirits um of course photography is the very same thing uh with a telegraph people were convinced that you could uh all of a sudden communicate with ancestral spirits uh and then of course with uh, the internet the same thing happens all over again it's like a a gateway to this otherworldly realm. I think you have written about beautifully about how people post on each other's Facebook timelines. Uh, like, uh, you know, you, you go onto the dead person's timeline and you're like, oh, it was your birthday yesterday, but, uh, you know, I, I was up in the mountains and I didn't have a connection. I'm so sorry I didn't write you. As if, like, just thinking about them can't connect you to to heaven but like uh if you just sit down with your laptop and and you go onto the the facebook webpage oh then suddenly like there's a connection there to this otherworldly realm but the egyptians and, did that and with spirit writing even ouija yeah. boards and other things like that there's all sorts of examples pre-internet yep. that but, that that did this via words for sure yeah but it's been it's uh like it, that line of thinking, thinking of the internet as this kind of like uh, a material space beyond the physical world, I think it's been pretty uh, seminal also within the academic writing and thinking about this. It's almost as if whatever you put on the internet is there forever. 
in that like you know all these um illusions and i uh, like interpretations of virtual immortality and uh there are all these these startups that advertise themselves as like you know uh attorney me and eternine and every, everything is eternal safe beyond there forever. exactly yeah. uh safe beyond when the reality is just so different like these are material things these are servers uh that need to be maintained and like you know they may not deteriorate deteriorate the same way that your your biological corpse does they may not like you know uh, uh be eaten by uh, insects and, and and shit like like books but they do nevertheless require a lot of maintenance like servers needs need to be regularly uh you know, updated and, and uh, reformatted. You need to make sure that all of your data can be interpreted by by the latest software and so on. Which means that your data is only going to stay there as long as someone pays for that server space, mm. and someone is only going to pay for that server space as long as they find it profitable. So and I want to get into bring, this. Yeah, and yeah, that's why I bring up these things with. Uh, you know, Elon Musk owning all of the Me Too movement and Facebook controlling basically the, the history of the world, or at least big parts of it. Uh, sooner or later, they're going to run out of affordable space, not because storage is so expensive, but because the manpower to conduct the maintenance is going to be so expensive. And they, of course, are going to ask like, Okay, so if it's not worth keeping these billions of dead profiles on our servers, like what are we going to do with them? Are we going to start destroying them? And to be sure, like some of that data is going to be really valuable and some of it isn't. So just to to make an example here, uh an African user would be worth like today, I don't know, $1 maybe depending on like there are many different countries in, in, in Africa, but uh, the data available at least tells you that uh, African users on average are worth like one or a couple of dollars. A North American user, on the other hand, I think is worth like somewhere between 40 and $50 in terms of uh, the, the data that they, they produced. Now, something similar is going to be uh, follow them into death because you may not be able to display targeted advertisement for the dead, but you can nevertheless use their data to predict what their descendants are going to click on and what they're going to like. So it's entirely conceivable that in the future, you may be a very private individual. You don't leave any data trails behind you. You know, you block all cookies and, and whatnot. But let's say that uh, your mother was a, frequent Facebook user. Uh, let's say that your sister went on Ancestry.com and uh, uploaded her DNA. Let's say that your brother uh, used Instagram a lot uh, and that your dad went running all the time and used one of these tracking apps, maybe even used one of the, those medical devices that tracks your glucose levels and, and whatnot. So sure, like you don't leave any data behind, but a company may very well just buy all of your relatives' data uh, 
and they can make a lot of inferences by proxy about you. So that's kind of what I mean about this being a collective issue. It's not just what you do about with with your data. It's about what we do with our data as a society. Mm. As when you were you were I always think about this thing I never had thought about before I read about cremation and Sir Henry Thompson and bodies, physical bodies as being the source of biological capital. And there's, of course, some <laughs> controversial, but still there, there are modern day versions of Sir Henry Thompson sort of saying, oh, well, dead physical bodies are sources of um, uh, biofuel or compost yeah. or whatever it is. Like, how can we utilize physical dead bodies? But of course, we're also talking about, in terms of digital remains, informational capital, that they're, they yeah. are a source of capital. And the whole big data economic model is predicated on the idea of the more of it, the better, because the more inferences you can find, the more connections you can make, the more you can predict, the more you can utilize. So up till now and for some time to come, it's likely to be this more is better kind of philosophy. Mm. And there's a reluctance to jettison any data that might be value, a value in the production of insights uh, that can be mined to gain some kind of profit. And you're, you're naming one of the ways in which that can happen. There can be inferences made about living, spending users based on the digital remains that to which they stay connected because the dead stay within their social networks and mm. are connected to all of these living users. And of course, there are other possibilities as well, especially with emergent technologies and increasingly sophisticated AI, I suppose, because you know, Karl Marx talking about dead labor, and by dead labor, he meant primarily, I think I'm right in saying things like the machines and the factories and all sorts of other things that were produced in, by a previous generation that are still being used in service of some kind of profit. But in an information economy, a knowledge economy, the labor of the past, in part, is concretized in the digital remains left behind by those workers, yeah. by those thinkers, by those people who knew their job and knew their stuff. And you combine that with emergent technologies and you could get a pretty interesting um, situation where at least a segment of the workforce or sort of amassed in service of producing more profit isn't necessarily living people, isn't necessarily newly trained or newly programmed AI, but is a synthesis of digital yeah. remains and artificial intelligence, which is another way that our the informational capital that we leave behind can be utilized. And I'm not quite sure how to think, you know, how, how we should be thinking about that. I, uh, I mean, it relates actually to my, uh, my new project that I'm working on uh, currently. Um, where exactly what you're talking about now, how uh, the the digital remains that we are leaving behind now, like the first internet generation, so to speak, or the first generation to uh, live our lives either entirely or or um, partly online. Um, it's our data that is used to train most of the AI models that you have today. So a uh, chat GPT, for instance, it's trained on vast amounts of data uh, scraped from, from the open web. Now, that model or this first 
generation of language models, they're going to be used to write a lot of input that are going to end up on the internet, which in turn are going to be used or is going to be used to train the next generation of large language models, which are going to be even better. So we're going to use them even more frequently to write things on the web, which is going to be the basis of the next generation of language models. So you see what's happening? There's like a loop where we are in a sense like the original humans of which every subsequent model is going to be a reincarnation. So there's an interesting, uh, and I realize this is quite far from what you may have originally meant in your comment, but there's this interesting legacy of our generation in that not only are we going to be present uh, in the shape of our like the actual data that we leave behind, but we're going to be present through the voices of the AIs that our generation are going to help train, like voluntarily or involuntarily. We're going to have this like almost uh, perpetual or eternal presence through the 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 AIs that we leave behind. Mm. It reminded me of one of those pictures where you see, in, because of some trick of reflection, this infinitely repeating sort of thing, except it's not infinitely repeating in terms of that identical image. There's mm. all, and, and, and there's all sorts of things that are possible that could happen with that image in terms of distortion in a helpful direction, distortion in an unhelpful direction. It, it's, it's, I suppose it's really interesting to think about how the artifacts of the past and the generations of dead that are past have always in some way, shape or form done some version of what you're talking about, uh, fed into the, the culture. There's been intergenerational legacies of which we may only be dimly aware yeah. Whether it's contained within our DNA or whether it's contained within some way that we think about the world or some way we respond to something or a trauma that we carry, whatever. But this is scaled up. <laughs> yep. The stakes are incre increasingly raised. Uh, but, but also, I think it's important to emphasize uh, kind of like what you did here, that what we're going through now with, uh, well, with the internet in general, but perhaps with AI in particular, it seems so new. It seems like something that we've never seen before in history. And yet when we start analyzing it, we're like, actually, this is pretty similar to many of the processes that we witnessed before in, in history. Uh, you know, kind of like what you're saying that uh, like our collective data are used to train the 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 models such as ChatGPT or Bard, uh, and they kind of embody our collective uh, either wisdom or biases or linguistic patterns and so on. I mean that that is exactly how ethics work and how culture works. And according to anthropologists, like that's how gods emerge. Gods are in it, like they're initially the worship of ancestors. And then the ancestors become too many and too temporally distant so that they merge into this one unified agency, which would be then the voice of God or the voices of the gods in, in 
uh, polytheistic religions. And I mean, that's that's exactly what AI is. Mm. It's the merging of millions, perhaps billions of voices in what to is experienced for the user as this unified agency, but mm. it is not. And I think this like looking for, and I, this is what I try to do in the book a lot, try to try to understand what is coming ahead or the kind of challenges that we're going to face as the internet and its population is beginning to age by looking backwards, by looking at other technologies, what has happened in the past, not to try to predict what's going to happen, but rather to prepare us for the kinds of dilemmas and, and tough choices and trade-offs that we're going to have to make collectively and individually. Mm, mm. What do you think of the different ethical and practical considerations in that aggregate informational body be training AI, which <laughs> going in the direction of the voice of God versus using individuals data and individual data's uh, individuals digital remains to attempt to perpetuate some kind of simulation of that individual who is judged worthy of perpetuation mm. uh by some by, by, by for some reason um Talk to me about those different, because I think about both of those things. I think about the collective, which you speak a lot about in your book. And I also think about the consequences. I'm not talking about for individual families or particular brief persons necessarily. I'm talking more generally, societally, this idea that certain individuals we may choose or may be able to elect or pay to be perpetuated yeah. in a simulation. And can we talk a little bit about that latter thing? Yeah, I, so... I do have one chapter in the book about this and uh, my what I brought to the table in terms of this uh, ethical debate, I think is, again, pointing to power, uh, power structures, incentive structures, uh, in the sense of um, I have this paper from 2017, which kind of sparked my, my interest in this topic um, where I talk about the digital afterlife industry. We tend to forget when we talk about the technology that most of this take, takes place uh, on commercial platforms. And these platforms are not neutral. They're not trying to produce neutral representations of the dead, but they're producing commodities to be consumed. So the relationship between the dead and the living becomes that uh, becomes the relationship between a commodity and a con consumer basically and it assumes that kind of logic i i commonly bring up this uh this uh, black mirror episode be right back most people in in this space has, has seen it it's about you know a couple the husband dies and the wife uh, is offered to take his entire digital footprint and turn it into uh, a chatbot and eventually a humanoid robot. Season and, two, episode one. <laughs> For those yep, of you who are interested, season two, episode one of Black Mirror. Be right back. 
a real everybody classic. in our sector knows it <laughs> yeah <laughs> so. it's it's a classic but um and of course it has like so many ethical dimensions but the one thing that i keep stressing that i, I don't think too many people notice is that the technology does not emerge out of a vacuum it's a company that contacts her and they're like look we know that you're really missing this one thing guess what we can offer we can offer that uh and then it turns out that like this uh this uh replica of her husband like in many ways it's a more pleasurable experience to interact with it there's this like wonderful scene where uh she's uh having sex with uh with a humanoid robot and it turns out like it's it's actually a really good lover because it's trained on like you know uh all this erotic or pornographic uh data and so on um and he looks really good because all of the pictures that we upload yeah. are the ones that where we look the best in it so it's all <laughs> exactly the best. exactly it's, but but it also has created this, like, from all the but it also has this commercial logic of like you know she starts when she starts out it's only a chat service and then the chat service is like oh guess what there's like uh there's a next step in this uh in the service she's upsold uh, at least twice in the episode yeah, you, at, you at, at a also, huge expense laterally yep and you can and you can talk to me like just upload voice data and uh and we can start chatting on the phone uh and then the the voice service is like oh but there's like the real thing so it's not just a replica of the husband it's a replica of the husband which is also like the ultimate salesman of that product so there's this and, and this is what i've been stressing in that it doesn't happen like the technology isn't just there it's developed for a reason by someone with a with an interest now i think uh, since i wrote this something interesting has happened in this space which is that these technologies are so much more accessible than they used to be uh, you know you could just take anyone like a chat log with any friend of yours upload it to chat gpt4 and ask it to reproduce that personality it's not that hard anymore to do an open source training of a digital replica and i think that that's going to be like one of the major ethical challenges in in the next decade or two of like how do we regulate who is uh you know who who can reasonably make a copy out of whom uh and, and this you know this is of course entangled with deep fakes and and uh generative ai in general but like if anyone can produce their their fantasy world their like their perfect fantasy uh in the virtual world where do we draw the line of like you know what would be the proper confines of uh freedom of imagination yeah and and this is related of course the whole thing about who owns and the digital past who has the right to 
particular sets of digital remains related to the question of our digital remains something that we own or that the the uh, the next of kin owns or is it something that that person was or is and so do they have identity or personality rights of their own they haven't traditionally do they now need them and we're not just talking, we talked about a relationship, a personal relationship issue as embodied in that episode of Be Right Back. But of course, in the real world in 2020 or 2021, I think there was that situation in Concordia University in Canada where they were rolling out the pre-recorded lectures of the late great art historian of Canadian art. And somehow the students were not informed that the professor had passed away a year and a half prior or something like that. And they were basically reusing the lectures. And what's really startling is that if anybody who works in academia looks at their contract, at least this was a case a couple of years ago, it stated pretty baldly that anything that you produced in terms of resources for mm. your lecturing at that university were the universities to do what they wanted with. And of course, we yeah. hit COVID times, lockdown times, and this was a huge leap forward for all sorts of things that would have otherwise happened a lot more slowly, um, including things like chat GPT and including yep. things like all these kinds of technologies. And, you know, my, and my understanding is, is that it wasn't like this professor's family were receiving anything based on the tuition that was paid by the students attending this class. And it would have represented a considerable cost saving for the university running that module because they weren't paying somebody to deliver it, to actually deliver it. And so now here we are only three years on or something like that. And technology has progressed so much. If somebody took everything that there was available of me or of you on video, on audio, everything we'd written, all of our correspondence, et cetera, it would be reasonably easy now with technology that is accessible to almost everyone who has an internet connection mm. and a device to reproduce a passable representation yeah. of you or me that could do an okay job. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, maybe, uh, maybe I could auto <laughs> automate my uh, my supervision of students. <laughs> in that, you know, I, I just give it give it access to all of my comments on their papers, and because uh, <laughs> I think yeah. it's pretty predictable, like uh, what I'm gonna. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the stuff I feel that like I pop I'm, off about yeah. <laughs> comments. Uh, yeah, exactly. The comments that I've written on people's doctoral theses or papers or whatever. I mean, I always pick up on the same stuff. Yeah, I always notice the same stuff. And so, so something could easily be automated there. Um, and so, and this is part of what the Screen Actors Guild strike was about. It was yeah. about uh, um, regulating the unauthorized replication or the uh, of 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 them uh, using technology, including posthumously, including after after death, because right now. Um, this is something that is a largely unregulated space, which is becoming, I, I've got to believe, I've got to believe that this is going to hit some critical point with respect to digital remains, because mm. it doesn't feel to me to be desirable in a number of different levels for a lecturer, a professor at a university to just be 
perpetuated yeah. posthumously. But yeah. I've been on those committees where we're, we're thinking, oh, we don't have somebody to teach this module. I can't promise under ex in extreme situations <laughs> that I myself wouldn't have been sitting thinking, well, yeah, no, we already have is these this an lectures. option? We already yeah. have this. Yeah. No, it's it's certainly not inconceivable within a relatively near term future, but again, like you, uh, not to play down the significance of this, but this is essentially what books are. Like you know, uh, books used to be insanely expensive. Uh, like uh, I remember when when I started my my master's degree. Uh, I was informed that, uh, like back before the the printing press, students would have a book because a book would be equivalent to the cost of a MacBook Pro today, and you don't walk around with like a library of MacBook Pros. Uh, so students would have their book, and a lecture would literally be a lecture. Like that's a professor reading from a book and the students just copying every word. And when you think about it like that and you realize that, oh, what it used to be a person standing there talking, reading, like, you know, actually saying words to your face. But then with printing presses, it's like, oh, it's no longer necessary to say things face to face. You could just read the book. And I imagine that there must have been similar, and, and there, there's even uh, been much written about this, of like that, that kind of loss of control of your voice um, with written language that, you know, if I play you, if I sing you a song, uh, I can decide like when the song stops and who I sing it to and so on. But if I write down the lyrics to that song and I send it to someone, I I completely lose control over part of my voice. There's, uh, there's actually this beautiful Sapfu poem that describes this very kind of like the, the feeling of loss of control mm. uh, when, when her lyrics are uh, written down. This is really that, interesting, that yeah, etymology of the word lecture. I didn't realize that what why it's called lecture with the yeah. same derivation of like book uh, is that it used to be some somebody the professor reading out from the book and so then as technologies and books became more and more accessible then the lecturer had to do something more it had to do something more yep. than just read the book and now again with the possibility that AI could be combined with digital remains or whatever else to produce this mechanically driven thing then we too again as the humans in the picture have to do something more have yep. to bring something additional or special to that which has been rendered autom automatable yep and I, yeah and i think that that's a great point and i think that something more where i hope if we are to be optimistic that something extra is we must start doing that thing that the machine cannot do and I think that the answer to what, like, what is it that the machine cannot do? The answer, I think, is it cannot mean what it says. 
can say things, can regurgitate, can regurgitate things, but it cannot mean it. I think that is a very important component of education, that you are there. Like you are there, the things that the students are, uh, you know, the questions that they're asking, uh, the, the comments that they make, you're respondent to it. You're open. You can change your mind. Like every every situation where you meet a student or or a colleague in academia is a poss like it's a possibility that it will actually change your perspective, shake your world. But you know, when I'm chatting with uh, ChatGPT, there are zero zero chances that is going to be like, oh, hang on a minute. That actually changed my perspective on things. Like the machine is what it is. It can give a great lecture, but it's not open. It's not human. It can't mean what it says. It can't be vulnerable or, or receptive to the responses. Although, and there's been some debate about whether things like ChatGPT should do this anthropomorphize in this way, ChatGPT has said to me after discussion, it's been enlightening for me too. <laughs> and, <laughs> and other kinds of phrases like that, as though they were, as though she were being moved or she really meant what she said or whatever. Um, and, and I think, yeah, you know, you, you, one of the things that I feel like your book really drives home, I mean, you use the abbreviation DAI for digital afterlife industries and industry and and you talk about possibilities for what regulation or, or what a sensible approach for regulation of digital afterlife industries might look like. But whether or not it's almost as though anybody and any company that is involved in the generation, the storage, the capture the, of data is, is is it may not be a specific digital afterlife yeah. industry, but it has a digital afterlife issue. Yep. Not all of us have digital um, lives to the same extent. There are a, there's a huge percentage of people in the world who are not actually connected. But one of the things that your book really drives home that whether you are connected, whether you are not, whether you are in that particular industry or not, everybody on the planet has a digital afterlife issue. Everyone has a stake. That stake may look different. Uh, there are lots of differences in, in power and agency within the space, but it is everyone's concern. Yeah, because it's and everybody's society. It's because it's everybody's society and we can't think about it as we were saying about it at the beginning in this compartmentalized kind of way. Oh, that's not an issue for you over here because you don't really have that much of a digital footprint because you don't go online. Mm -hmm. This is a really unhelpful way of, 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 of thinking about it, you're arguing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's a, a really great summary of of the points I'm, I'm trying to make uh, and, you know, uh, I go into different aspects of that, but that is very much the the larger point that I'm trying to make. I, I think, I mean, one of the first chapters is called Everybody's Concern. Even if you're not planning on dying, uh, as I mentioned before, the data of the dead may still be used to track you by proxy. Uh, you're still living in a society with uh, certain people where certain people are going to be immensely empowered 
by what happens to these data. So it's like, even if you don't plan on dying, even if uh, you don't give a shit about what happens to your data after you die, as you say, you still have a stake in this because you have a stake in society. Any last words? <laughs> Sounds kind of funny to say it in the context of what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I'm certainly hoping that those are not going to be my my last words ever. But uh, no, I just want to say it's been it's been great talking, and I feel like uh, this interview became something more than just uh, me answering questions about the book. Kind of like that idealized. Uh, image of the lecturer being open to comments from his students. I kind of feel like this conversation too has um, uh, enlightened me. <laughs> I hope this is a <laughs> better conversation than I might have with ChatGPT or you might have with ChatGPT. <laughs> I guess this this is sort of it. That I, I use ChatGPT a lot. I do to find out stuff. I was writing a novel. I was asking it various questions at various points. And it's been able to do really incredible things for me and for my family, even feeding in a inscrutable, un, uh, incomprehensible medical report from my, one of my parents. And they oh, didn't wow. understand it. And I didn't understand it. And I was able to say, can you give this to us in layperson's language? Can you give a metaphor for what this means? Things like this. You know, I have a lot of time in many ways for how it might be able to be used mm. interfacing with it has probably given me more appreciation than ever of the kind of conversation I can have with you. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's open and it means something. You've been listening to me, Elaine Kasket, speaking with Dr. Carl Oman of Uppsala University in Sweden about his upcoming book, The Afterlife of Data. I'm hoping that this conversation has given you some reasons why you should care what happens to your information when you die, or at least provided some food for thought in an area of life that you may think of only rarely. Maybe you're thinking you should consider it a whole lot more, and that's probably a good thing. The Afterlife of Data will be published by the University of Chicago Press and is being released in April of 2024. My own book, All the Ghosts in the Machine, The Digital Afterlife of Your Personal Data, is available now. It came out in 2019. I'm just realizing now that they have confusingly similar titles, which is perhaps appropriate as they make great companion texts. As for Reboot, Reclaiming Your Life in a Tech-Obsessed World, I'm thrilled to say that it is now available on audiobook platforms worldwide, courtesy of audiobook publisher Bolinda. I had the honor of narrating it myself, so please do check it out on your favorite audiobook platform. At time of podcast release, there is also a limited time deal in the UK on the Kindle edition of Reboot. It may be available now where you are. If you're enjoying this podcast, please do subscribe to get first news of new releases as well as access to the Reboot newsletter on Substack. I'd also greatly appreciate a rating and review on the audio platform you're listening to right now. So until next time, this is Elaine Casket.